2041. President Josh Hawley is in the Rose Garden commemorating Donald Trump Day. He offers his recollections of the harrowing events of January 6th, when a few congressmen and thousands of patriots fought to preserve electoral integrity in the United States. Their transgressions that day, though difficult for the nation to see, helped to open the eyes of citizens to the failures of our electoral system. He remarks to the crowd one million strong on the extraordinary progress of the past two decades in restoring the sanctity of the right to vote in the United States. This includes the historic legislation which reinvigorated the Voting Rights Act, this time with preclearance required for all states that have used mail-in voting and other alternative voting mechanisms in the past year. He recalls the significance of Texas v. Dominion, the landmark Supreme Court case that finally vanquished the fraudulent electronic voting machines for good. And he praises the scores of voting rights activists for their work to ensure once again that only bona fide U.S. citizens with government-issued ID who are available to vote in person between the hours of 1 p.m. and 3 p.m. on the first Tuesday of November have access to the franchise. Vice President Ivanka Trump is by his side, serving as a powerful reminder of the Trump family's hard-fought return to the White House. The late President Trump, of course, after initially being cast out of the party as a pariah, had his political fortunes revived by Republicans who found in him the perfect vehicle for their sweeping electoral reform agenda. Ivanka carries his legacy forward. So that's as far as I got with these musings. And for some, this may sound like a dream, for others, a dystopian nightmare. And for all, it might sound far-fetched, and it may be, but I submit that this is a much more realistic version of de-democratization in the United States than most that have been penned in the last few years. Numerous books and articles have appeared warning of the dangers of de-democratization in the US. Many point to examples like Turkey, Hungary, and Venezuela, where a popularly elected leader comes to power and then corrodes democratic institutions in the quest for executive aggrandizement. Some have looked to the case of Weimar Germany, which besides the United States is the case I'm most familiar with. They draw analogies to the burning of the Reichstag and the Beerhal Putsch and seek to identify in them the warning signs of democratic decay. It's hard to look at the events of January 6 and not see these analogies. Still, I maintain that de-democratization in the United States will not look like this despite the similarities between what we saw on the 6th and the violent insurrections we've seen elsewhere. And I don't mean to diminish the significance of the political violence which threatened our electoral process and continues to do so. Not only is it deeply disturbing, but in point of fact, there was a coup, or at least an attempted coup. I think our reluctance to label it as such may stem from the fact that we exoticize such events when they happen elsewhere and cannot recognize them in our own context. But there was an attempted coup, and then there was a counter coup when Pence called in the National Guard. And make no mistake, our military intervened in an election. On this occasion, it was to uphold the results, which is a relief to us all, but still the military intervened. And with all this, I would still say that I do not think moving forward, this is the greatest danger to our democracy. Because unlike Hungary and Turkey and elsewhere where we have seen serious corrosion of democratic institutions through violence or through the threat of violence, in the United States, we have a political class that is deeply invested in elections as the means of gaining power. This is not to say that they are committed to an equal and fully participatory electoral process. They are not, I would say on either side, they are not really committed to that, but they are committed to elections. Their political fortunes are tied to elections and they will fight for them. Is this reassuring? Well, yes and no, mostly no. Historically in the United States, one of the main ways in which both democratic expansion and retraction has taken place is through the franchise and through voting rights. And violent mobs have often paved the way. The reversal of immigrant voting rights, the history of Jim Crow, felony disenfranchisement, which remains one of the strongest legacies of Jim Crow, and so on and so on. No one need look further than the history of the United States to understand what the dynamics of de-democratization may look like. And it's in this arena that we are likely to see movement now. In fact, the battle line started to take shape on January 6th. Not hours had passed since the Capitol siege when Republican senators took to the floor to condemn the violence and in the same breath talk about the need for electoral reform to remedy the many problems with the election. 
In doing so, they gave credence to the justifications of the riots, if not their means. Earlier that very morning, Nancy Pelosi had declared on the heels of the Georgia runoff victories that one of the top priorities of the new government will be voting rights and the restoration of the preclearance clause to the Voting Rights Act. This is the struggle that lies ahead, and it's not a new struggle, but it's one that will be given renewed vigor with a core of Trump supporters now completely convinced that our faulty election rules led to fraudulent outcomes. And let us not forget that the resort to violence came after various attempts to change the outcome of the election through litigation and through pressure on election officials, state legislators, governors, senators, and finally the vice president himself. All, counten all countenance by the Republican Party and the political establishment more generally. While they will not forsake an electoral process in favor of violent power grabs, they are infinitely amen amenable to manipulations of that electoral process. So yes, the coup, coup attempt and the rise of political violence are of great concern. But my concern is also for the implications for voting rights and the integrity of elections, which are at the heart of these confrontations. And with Republicans signaling now that they may support impeachment, it seems that they are searching for a way to distance themselves for the president while retaining his agenda. I worry that we may look back in 20 years and pat ourselves on the back for averting a coup and miss a more peaceful but equally damaging revolution in our electoral system that has the potential to transform our democracy. That was Professor Amel Ahmed at a panel held soon after January 6th this year. You can find the link in the show notes. I spoke with Ahmed two, two weeks later following Biden's inauguration about the now open regime contention between the two major political parties. One of these parties is coalescing around a nakedly anti-democratic and racist resolve to subvert the electoral process by any means necessary. As Ahmed said in her talk, this time it took military intervention to protect the legitimate result from an attempted coup but that by itself has set a dangerous precedent. Every major election in the U.S. going forward, even at the state level, may become a literal battlefield. Amel Ahmed is Professor of Political Science at the University of Massachusetts Amherst. Her main area of specialization is democratic studies, with a special interest in elections, voting systems, legislative politics, party development, and voting rights. She examines these issues in historical and comparative perspective, and her work combines a regional focus on Europe and the United States. She's author of the book Democracy and the Politics of Electoral System Choice, Engineering Electoral Dominance, uh, published by Cambridge University Press, uh, and in a new book-length project entitled Conflict and Cooperation, Institutional Sequencing and Regime Stability in Early Democratizers, she examines the long-term impact of institutional choice and particularly the order of institutional development on democratic stability. Okay, so when we spoke a little while ago, um, uh, you were pretty... Uh, pretty confident uh, about, um, you know, the whole rule of law thing and the elections challenges not going uh, anywhere. Um, so, so I guess that would be a good place to start is in light of the last few weeks. Um, yeah, what, what do you think has, has held up? Uh, what might be surprising? Or have you, ha has it changed your, your assessment about sort of the security of the electoral process in the U.S.? It has not changed my assessment. I think, you know, the rule of law has held up. It's been under extreme duress. Um, but if we look at the, the vast amounts of litigation that have happened around the election, I think it has run its course. There were you know, many different cases that were entertained and interrogated and, and found wanting in terms of evidence. So I think that part has not surprised me. Um, of course, 
the resort to violence in the end was uh, alarming for everyone. And I think what that signaled more than anything was that um, there is a large portion of the population that does not have confidence in the election results or in the electoral process as we have seen it take place. And by extension, they also apparently don't have confidence in courts to be able to litigate litigate and adjudicate um, disputes, which is something that we've relied on since uh, the beginning of electoral politics in the United States and elsewhere. Hmm. So that's the real crisis here. It's not, um, you know, from what I can tell of this election, um, ironically, it's a much cleaner election than most we have had in, in in, in recent memory, hmm. there were very few um, problems that were flagged. And typically with elections, if there's a problem, you're, you're going to see it the night of. It's going to appear very quickly. It's not going to appear uh, days or, or weeks later. Um, very often when there are uh, irregularities or discrepancies, they're there from, from the very beginning. And none of those were flagged. And then the kind of forensic autopsy of the election also revealed very little. And I think um, in terms of our election administration and apparatus, it performed very well. Hmm. And part of the reason for that, I think, is because of the circumstances of the pandemic, there were so many proactive campaigns. There was outreach and voter education to help guide people through the different stages of the process. Um, in truth, I think this should happen for every election because mm. voters always need help navigating the labyrinth of bureaucracy and the different dates that um, that that have to uh, that one has to keep track of to execute their their vote. Um, but those campaigns, I think, were very effective in 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 ensuring that people signed where they needed to sign, had mm. their things in on time. So we actually saw fewer irregularities than we have in past elections. Um, but the impression is quite the opposite. Yeah. The impression is that this was a, a, a for a portion of the population, um, not for everyone, obviously, but for a significant portion of uh, voters who identify as Republican and who take their cues from Republican leaders, there's the impression that this was a deeply flawed election. Uh, allegations of fraud, of course, have been um, forthcoming. And... I think a lot of it is, has to do with perspective and how this election was approached, not just by those who were you know, sowing uh, division and, and discontent, but even by those who were defending the election, mm. who could not, uh, I think, effectively anticipate the questions that would emerge in people's minds when all of a sudden you have a process that is usually you know, outside of the public view. Suddenly you have it under a microscope and every aspect of it being interrogated. And people don't have the frame of reference to understand that irregularities happen all the time. What we describe as irregularities, um, it's human error. There are imperfections. This is part of our administration. And every part of our administration is prone to human error. And we've gotten to this point where we expect a level of perfection in elections that would truly be unmatched anywhere else in our politics or in our bureaucratic apparatus. Um, but, you know, I really think it's a, it's a matter of perspective hmm. that has driven um, a, a large number of people to doubt these elections. I mean, is there a, a basic problem here of having to understand, um, uh, you know, not just the electoral process uh, as, a, as a whole, but, I mean, there are essentially, you know, dozens of, elections taking place even though it's for the same national outcome because each state is kind of you know doing its own thing um so is there anything to the idea that you know if we somehow had a uniform system that i mean would that make these perception problems worse or or would it help I think introducing more uniform, uniformity would certainly help. And we have uh, some advocacy groups and, and some fairly uh, prominent people in, in the voting and election um, administration circles who are pushing for greater uniformity. Mm -hmm. uh, Rick Hassan, who is a professor of political science and law, um, has made the case that our decentralized election system is uh, it, it, 
is prone to lots of these, these pitfalls and greater uniformity would help to remedy this. So of course you have different, um, it's not just states, even different locales yeah. have different, um, different procedures that are used, different even you know times at which polls are open and closed. So these things have been decentralized to the point where um, what may be a problem in one context is not in another, but people are judging based on their experience and what they've seen around them. So there is um, lots of opportunity for misunderstanding and of course to spread disinformation about yeah. practices that are perfectly legitimate given the, the legal code in that area, um, but are perceived as being uh, an aberration because they don't conform with what people see in their own surroundings. Well, and it also, to me, it seemed, so, you know, while all these cases, as you said, were uh, were dismissed and, and so on, that it creates multiple pressure points for someone who really wants to change the outcome. So, uh, you know, we, we have this situation where, uh, you know, the president is calling, like, down to the level of some county, uh, you know, uh, clerk or, you know, whatever the exact title is, um, all the way up to the secretary of the state. Um, and is, uh, you know, it in this particular case, it did not sort of come to, uh, it, it wasn't successful. But I mean, is is the fact that there are so many people in this process who, I mean, in, in some ways it seems to me that the system worked because, not because of some built-in like checks and balances, but because a bunch of people sort of resisted the, the pressure and had a few of them flipped the other way, uh, you know, it might have played out uh, differently. I mean... Yeah, well, what's what's your sense of that? The the role of these, you know, uh, like the Georgia Secretary of State or even the county clerk who says no, you know, this this is what the result is. So I think they absolutely played a pivotal role in one that was unexpected. Um, there was also I remember a very. Um, important, you know, I remember it was a Monday morning meeting of the Michigan Election Board where people were actually waiting to see if they would certify the election. And that kind of political pressure, first of all, I would say um, it became clear to me that a lot of this litigation was not actually meant to serve a legal strategy. Hmm. So I don't think they actually hoped to prevail in court. I think the litigation actually uh, was meant to serve the political strategy of placing pressure on individuals to break with their uh, expected roles and and um, delay certification or of you know introduce an investigation and all these these things that were being asked of political officials. So I do think that was very much part of it. Um, and we saw it in a way that I think we haven't seen before. And it was for me, um, probably the most alarming thing about this entire process mm-hmm. and about, you know, in a presidency that has broken many norms and showed disregard for many democratic practices, um, putting pressure on elected officials to reverse a decision um, was for me the most alarming. And it also made people realize that this can be done. Mm-hmm. And in I don't know how close it came to success because of course, if they chose to do this, they open themselves up to legal challenges. So it's not a one way strategy, but I think you're absolutely right that it has brought something into uh, the realm of our political imagination that probably was not there before. And there may be different scenarios in which that kind of pressure would actually work. Um, So moving forward, I think you are likely to see efforts to decrease the ambiguity in these cases. Oftentimes, you know, when you have situations like this, you see a lot of uh, regulation going in after the fact to try to plug the holes or identify the the points of weaknesses in in a system. Um, And I think that would be welcome. But at the end of the day, any democratic system requires people to um, 
uphold the rule of law in every circle that they are in. Hmm. And we will always rely on people who are, you know, willing to not just uphold the rule of law, but resolve ambiguities in the direction of building confidence in the system. Hmm. Hmm. So there are always going to be areas for discussion and ambiguities. um, But precedent is important. Institutions are important in structuring politics and giving people confidence in outcomes. And we need people to really understand that and that um, breaking with the way things have operated for, for an extended period of time is a destabilizing thing to do. And And in this case, you know, sometimes destabilizing is we don't necessarily see that as uh, negative. I mean, you know, there's sort of disruptions and so on that that we'd we'd welcome. Um, but in right. this case, the uh, yeah, you know, I, I I admit to have having multiple moments of suspense simply because uh, uh, you know not knowing what uh, what these two people in Detroit you know would uh, would do um, and how that would. Uh, uh, play out and and uh, I I I appreciate your putting it in this sort of framework that no matter how good the system itself is, ultimately we will be relying on people who have uh, you know the whatever we want to call it courage or integrity to to stick to it um, and you know in this case like. Almost at the fear of their lives in in a few cases where, um, uh, and and that was that was really alarming. Um, I mean, do I you just want to say quickly yeah. to something that you said that um, I, I often come off as as conservative in my desire to maintain procedures and precedents, but I would just say you know I think disruptions are certainly welcome in certain contexts, but I would welcome them in the form of substantive disruptions mm. to to how we think about. Uh, policy and how we think about democracy and how we think about inclusion in the United States. I don't welcome procedural disruptions mm-hmm. and procedural unknowns. That's just destabilizing for everyone. If you are operating according to one set of rules and you realize that just by putting pressure on this individual, the rule changes. That, you know, that's the kind of uh, procedural ambiguity and, and instability that I don't think anyone would welcome if they if they're looking forward to maintaining um, a semblance of democracy. Absolutely. I mean, in the case of, uh, you know, uh, there are, you know, especially these days, uh, you know, lots of progressives and lefties running for office. And and if we can't rely on people following the rules, I mean, you know, uh, yeah. Then, then there's no point. It becomes in... the play of power. Yeah, exactly. We, we might as well not have institutions. Exactly. Um, do you also think so? You know what you were saying about the litigation being a sort of a political ploy. Um, uh, w- was it also part of like? It, it struck me that. Uh, it, you know, they, they were able to just keep it in the in the in the air that no, this thing is in dispute because you know because we are disputing it, it's it's nice. being, you know it's um, but that that seemed to resonate with people enough that then when it was clearly not panning out, I mean, do you think that that sort of uh, disappointment fed into the the sort of the violence on the on the sixth versus the violence also being part of you know basically a continuation of politics by other means um, by the the administration. I mean, how do we yeah how do we sort of analyze you know what what those events were about in light of sort of this uh, litigation and this political pressure leading up to it. I think it's it comes down to more than disappointment. Any election in any uh, under any conditions, you have a group that's going to be disappointed. And for the most part, we expect losers to accept their losses because there's you know there's too much at stake yeah. because they have more invested in the current system and have something to to benefit from and and and. Um, 
don't want to destroy that system for an uncertain future. Um, I think what is different in this scenario, it's not the disappointment, it's the perception of an existential threat hmm. from the opposing side. And I would say that perception is on the left and the right. And that kind of polarization, so it's not just polarization, it's polarization combined with the view that the other side, um, them, the, the other side coming to power poses an actual threat to my well-being, to my ability to survive for the next four years. You know, mm -hmm. that's what elections require. People saying we'll come back in four years. Losers accept their losses and they, you know, regroup and they come back in four years. And the fact that you had this, uh, you know, constituency that refused to say that, mm -hmm. that is a real red flag. Um, and I don't know that if the outcome were reversed, you wouldn't have seen uh, the left out in the street. I mean, probably not in the same manner, of course. Um, but I do think we're in this really precarious situation where we have polarization combined with this perception of existential threat hmm. that um, puts a democracy in real jeopardy. Really, all democracy needs to fail is for people to... Um, stop playing by the rules to, for, for the loser to say, no, we will not accept their, these losses hmm. for them to have the power to enact that. Hmm. And, and sorry, go ahead. No, no, please uh, finish your, your thought. No, I just, I feel like it, it, we're, we're moving in that direction on, on both sides. Hmm. Um, we saw that on full display on January 6th. Um, but we, we're not seeing the kind of attitude of politics as a competition where you do your best and then you find some way to live with it because otherwise you burn everything down. Hmm. And that kind of, call it pragmatist, I call it really a, a deeply political attitude. Hmm. Um, that's what's required to grease the wheels of democracy. It's not ideology. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so, you know... Uh, both of us remember four years ago the sort of the the various marches and protests we we went to and what i remember is people weren't uh well uh, maybe there were some people on the left saying that the result was uh was a fraud in some technical or or some 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 way having to do with elections but mostly it was you know when we said this is not my president it was about um uh, it was a statement of our of our interests um, not being represented, rather than what I got the sense in the six was that uh, it's um, uh, that this that this whole process is uh, it's it's fraudulent, right? I mean, it's um, uh, um, but but in terms of the raw intensity, yeah, I think if if Trump had won, uh, certainly a bunch of us would have been. Um, out in the streets, and I, I, you know there is a sense in which uh, an administration that is, um, you know, really basically putting people's lives at risk by uh, being so negligent uh, with the pandemic response. Um, I mean, you know, it is an existential threat, or I could, I could couch it as such. Um, without implying that that means that we should try to undermine the the electoral process. I don't know. That wasn't very clear. Um, no, it was actually very clear. And I, I, I don't disagree that there was an existential threat that was posed, um, especially around the pandemic. And I don't want to be too much of a rationalist about it, but I, I don't believe that people's commitments to democracy are purely ideological. I think there is a cost-benefit analysis. And the, the benefit of maintaining a democracy, even as a loser in that system, has to remain higher than, than the cost of, of destroying it. Hmm. Um, and I think that calculation still prevails, even on the right. So, I mean, we, we have this very dramatic event, and for a vocal and violent group of people, that calculation fell through. Mm -hmm. um, 
And I think the fear is that that might inspire others who would, would react similarly. But overall, I think our institutions are holding, and I think public attitudes are holding, which is that, you know, we may not like this current administration, but, you know, we also don't want revolution. We want to continue to, um, you know, try to cooperate under the system. I think that is the calculation for the vast majority of the population and the majority of the political class who have closed ranks now with very few exceptions um, around the clear winner of the election. Yeah, yeah, that's that's clear that the establishment has really um, sort of, uh, yeah, cohered around this. Um, uh, so that kind of does lead into, you know, I was, I was struck by uh, what you said on the, the panel the other day about that neither of our two big parties is necessarily committed to, you know, full-blown, like, democracy in some, you know, really um, uh, ideal sense. But they are, <laughs> they are committed to the to the electoral process. Can, so can you say a little more about the difference between those two things? And then sort of relatedly, are there significant like qualitative differences between the two parties in their commitments to, you know, uh, even this limited kind of democracy that we are talking about through, through the electoral process? Absolutely. And uh, thank you. I think that, it's something that's been on my mind a lot lately as, um, you know, in my field, there are a number of people who have uh, warned about democratic backsliding in the United States or de-democratization or autocratization. And they point to cases like Hungary or Turkey or Venezuela or elsewhere where we've seen um, popularly elected leaders that come in and really corrode democratic institutions. I mean, in these cases, they really, they rewrite the constitution and they change the way parliament works and they do all sorts of damage. And I think the, the warning signs are important, but I think it's a false analogy, hmm. or it's, it's at least a somewhat misleading analogy in this case, because the U.S. differs from um, these cases in many important respects. But I think the most important of them is that we have a political class that is deeply invested in elections as the means of gaining power. Hmm. And um, again, like you said, this is not the same thing as saying that they're deeply committed to an equal and, and fully participatory electoral process. They're not. But they're committed to elections. This is Their political fortunes are vested in this electoral process. And I think they'll fight for it. Hmm. So I don't think our legislature is going to fold the way that the Hungarian legislature did under Orban or, right. or Turkish under Erdogan. I don't think that makes any sense to even expect that. They're going to hold on to elections and try to accomplish what they want through that electoral process. And I do think there are differences between the parties, but they're not as um, significant as, as we might perceive. So if you look at the area of voting rights, which I'm very... Uh, focused on, um, you're going to start seeing movement on, on both sides to move towards their version of what democratic voting rights look like. Hmm. You saw as early as January 6th, Republican senators saying that we need electoral reform. And what they're talking about is electoral reform to fix all of these uh, problems of mail-in voting and, and these uh, new alternative voting processes, which were very successful in this election and pose a threat to them. Hmm. Democrats, on the other hand, are pushing for, um, you know, I think they're pushing for, they, they talk about greater expansion of voting rights, but they're focused so narrowly on restoring this pre-clearance clause to the Voting Rights Act, which historically has been really important. It's the clause that requires certain jurisdictions to go through additional screening before they change their voting uh, mm. rules. And it applied uh, very much in, at, you know, at the time the Voting Rights Act was um, enforced, it was, it, the, the focus was on uh, districts in the South, where you had um, a history of, of really uh, violent and, and uh, discriminatory practices towards black voters, especially. Yeah. So that's what the Democrats are, are focused on. And, you know, of course, the Voting Rights Act and expansion of voting access is a noble goal. But even the Democrats, when you see how they put in place these practices, they're also just focusing on their voters. Mm. 
they want greater access for their voters. They're not out there with general, you know, voter education campaigns. They're not in rural Appalachia fighting for voting rights. So I think both sides are manipulating this category of voting rights for their political advantage. Mm. And we are stuck in this place where the only groups that are involved in voter education, voter mobilization, and, and all of that are either private advocacy groups, which are severely limited in their resources, or campaigns. Those are really the only two groups. The other you know, civil society organizations that used to be involved in these efforts have either atrophied or they've kind of receded from their public role. Um, and so there is so much room for, for manipulation, even in terms of voter mobilization, hmm. that I think, you know, we, we, we tend to think of Democrats as, as the party of voting access and Republicans as the party of voter denial or, or, or you know, retrenchment and focus on electoral integrity. I think we really need to change the frame and understand that these are political parties their campaigns, their politicians who want to win. And we need, I think, a better effort and, and to start demanding more of our government in terms of the kind of resources voters need to be able to, to exercise their, their right to vote um, without relying on support from more self-interested parties. Hmm. So it's almost like a, like a uh, public TV version of that... It, it shouldn't it shouldn't be based on like your your being mobilized to vote uh, shouldn't yes. come from a particular party it should really be coming from i don't know the, the government at large or um as a centralized like uh, just like something that just keeps going um uh, is there other countries that do that That's a very good question. I'm not sure that I, you know, I do think, yes, there are um, in, in. So the irony is you see it in a lot of social democracies of Europe and you see it in emerging democracies mm. where you need stronger support and, 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 and voter education for people for whom this is a, a new practice. Um, and you, you don't really see this in the United States. And what I have been arguing, I'm writing something right now on this, uh, is that we really need to start thinking of voting rights the way we think of economic rights. Mm. And, uh, you know, economic rights and voting rights, they, they share uh, one strong similarity in that neither one is guaranteed in the Constitution or in the Bill of Rights. But with economic rights, we have demanded of our government to provide not just uh, protection from harm, but also the resources that we need for our well-being. Hmm. And I think we need to think of voting rights like this so far. And this is my other issue with, you know, reaching for the Voting Rights Act as the way forward is that the Voting Rights Act is, is framed in terms of prevention of harm, protection from discrimination. It doesn't make any claims of, you know, what is the structure that voters actually need to be able to meaningfully exercise their vote mm -hmm. and move from, you know, a, a aspiration or intention to vote to actually exercising this, this, this right. Mm -hmm. So I really think we need to change how we think about voting rights on the left and a progressive agenda for voting rights uh, would take its cues from, from the agenda for economic rights that has been very successful over the past decades. Oh, well, I would love to, uh, when you do have that, uh, that would be, uh, uh, yeah, uh, it would be great to uh, to encounter that. Because, um, uh, you know, it, I, I, I agree that, at least in the part of the left that I'm sort of active in, uh, there's, you know, there's certainly broad support for, uh, for you know, get out the vote campaigns and so on. Um, uh, but, you know, because it, it goes hand in hand with this basic sort of turning up our nose at elections as the engine of, uh, you know, change, um, the commitment is somewhat, I would say, it's, it's ambivalent. Um, and, uh, and, you know... But it also shouldn't be up to in individual organizations and private groups. You know, it's kind of the neoliberalization of elections. Hmm. Voting becomes a private act and everyone or every group is, is in charge of, uh, it, they're responsible for um, acquiring the resources they need to be successful. 
So, you know, even the fact that, you know, groups on um, progressive groups are trying to do this on their own without any level of coordination, without any assistance or, or sense of, you know, strategy and, and how to do this effectively. It shouldn't be left to individuals. It shouldn't be left to private organizations. And it certainly shouldn't be left to campaigns. Hmm. Well, that would be that would be a very significant uh, reform that would be more than a reform if we actually got to the point where, as you're suggesting, that uh, you know we we seem to. I mean, in lip service to the right to vote is is all over the place, but to actually op- commit to operationalizing it independently of who it benefits at a particular moment. Um, uh, I, I agree would be would be kind of profound. Um, uh, so which might be a nice segue into um, uh, you know and however m- much more time you have like to um, uh, you know I know you're you're working on um, uh, on this book right now and so if if you'd care to kind of tell us about that but also how uh, you know you're thinking about that has, perhaps co-evolved with uh, with this election? Um, so it, the two have co-evolved really over the last four years, which is how long I've been writing this book. Um, and it comes from a more than uh, an interest. It's become kind of like an obsession for me, hmm. um, politically and, and, and scholarly, to understand what are the conditions that make political compromise possible? Hmm. And um, to understand that in, in many different dimensions, to not just any compromise, of course, uh, ethical compromise, productive compromise, the kind of compromise that is required for democracy to sustain itself. Hmm. And so it, it led me to look at legislatures and parties and, and what are the structural conditions that um, push cooperation and, and um or or conversely push conflict. And one of the things that I have been following very closely is the impact of regime contention, you know, fighting over democracy, essentially. Mm. Um, We think of fights over democracy as something that happens uh, before a country becomes democracy, and then, you know, we just don't think about what happens after that. But we know, for example, that in emerging democracies, regime contention exists long after the point of transition. And we're now seeing across the world of established democracies that regime contention does reappear at different times. Hmm. Um, and what I'm finding, and, and uh, for me, you know, I find, I'm finding it both in the historical context that I'm working on for this book and in the context of contemporary politics in, in the West, that regime contention, um, it introduces a different dimension into politics, uh, what I'm calling the regime dimension, and the... It, what's important, I think, about that is that the regime dimension doesn't function like other policy dimensions. In hmm. other policy dimensions, you have entrepreneurial leaders who have, you know, they want to compromise and they engage in a kind of log rolling that makes compromise more likely. Hmm. But on the regime vector, because it, it introduces, again, these, these existential questions, you're a lot less likely to see cooperation. It works in in the opposite way. Um, And it can actually interrupt other areas of compromise. If if the regime dimension becomes entrenched enough, it starts to interrupt um, other axes of of compromise. So this is what has been really occupying my thinking. And um, I see it historically, the the cases that I focus on in the book um, is interwar Europe. Um, But I also see it in different forms um, within emerging democracies today, and even in established democracies, once you enter this page of this period of regime contention, both for, uh, you know, democracies defenders and democracies detractors, this becomes such a fraught and zero sum situation that compromise becomes less and less possible. Hmm. I mean, is that what we are going through or what we went through recently is uh, is you know contention that spilled over into into regime uh, into the regime dimension yes I, I I certainly think so 
Yeah. Um, I mean, not as dramatically as Weimar Germany, certainly, hmm. or even you know Third Republic France or other places where we've seen uh, an actual contest contest over um, politics. But there, you know, with Trump, there is a real fear that if we you know don't make a stand, that this will be the end of democracy or it's going to be a slippery slope and you see certainly parallels historically uh, and what i you know what i keep thinking and, and and what i keep going back to is that it's not just democracy's detractors very often democracy's defenders overreact because the threat seems so hmm. large hmm. because the stakes are so high and so they go down this, uh, you know, road of what some have called a, a kind of hardball politics, where there is no compromise because you, you know, you cannot acquiesce. And being able to tell the difference between appeasement that will only empower the aspiring autocrat and a intransigence that's actually undermining democratic stability is a very difficult thing. And like I said, this has just been. Uh, such a preoccupation of mine intellectually and politically over the past several years. And and so the book itself is uh, is uh, uh, you said was focused on interwar Europe. Um, are you going to allude to uh, to the you know current sort of state of things in the in the U.S. in the book, or is it more of a kind of this you know backdrop? You know, I think, you know, I've just started writing the preface and I think it, it does make sense to allude not just to the U.S. today, but even, you know, throughout Europe, you're seeing mm. this. Um, coalition governments are uh, facing, you know, really serious questions about um, what an ethical coalition is and, and how far they can stretch mm. um, the, the boundaries. Mm. And I think these are important questions that democracies across the globe are facing. Mm. Um, interestingly, you know, I also see it in um, new and emerging democracies and the questions that come up are, is it okay to compromise? Is mm. it okay to compromise with these people who are potentially our enemies in a different context? And what are the limits of what is an ethical compromise and, and how far can we extend ourselves in coalitions? Mm. Hmm. You know, I mean, democracy is, uh, you know, is a historical product. I mean, is there, uh, if, if it's happening in so many places, I mean, and here you can tell how uninformed, uh, you know, a way of putting it this is, but um, I mean, is there a sense in which maybe the historical product is beginning to outlive its shelf life i mean that is that the challenges are uh yes traditional autocratic you know just the old-fashioned well i want power and if this isn't the way i'm gonna get rid of it like versus that there's something about the thing itself that is not quite adapting to to some underlying you know uh fractures you know, honestly, I think democracy outlived its shelf life as soon as it came into being. It was always inadequate. It was always, uh, you know, and when it hasn't been stagnant, you've had the evolution of social democracy. You've had other uh, manifestations of it. But I think the, the limits that we face really are limits of political imagination. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, we see the consequences of, of a political imagination in the other way, and, and that becomes alarming so we retract and, and go back to the safety of you know procedural democracy and, and mm. electoral democracy mm. um but i think without some real theorizing and deep soul searching to to figure out what would this look like and very often you know i, I do this exercise with my students in, in comparative democratization because um we're so trapped by our vocabulary you know, we study democracy and autocracy. Those are the options. And then there are lots of hyphenations in between. And so something I like to do with my students is challenge them to, you know, what, how would we talk about political change and political development if we didn't have these words? Mm. You know, what, what if these words didn't exist? How would we talk about politics? And how would we, you know, expand the vocabulary? And it's always interesting to me that what they're able to come up with. Mm. 
Hmm. Um, but we're so trapped in this binary and I fall into it as well. You know, I'm a scholar and I've, I've challenged this binary over and over again, but it's so entrenched in our, uh, you know, academic writing and our political speech that it's hard to think outside of it or beyond it. Yeah. I was just going to ask you when, uh, when do you plan to write that book? Cause that's, the... <laughs> I've been writing that book since graduate school. (laughs) (laughs) The most striking insight from this conversation for me was Ahmed's emphasis of the essential weakness of electoral democracy, even in its own terms. Parties focus on rustling up their own voters rather than on deepening mass political involvement uh, more generally. At the moment in the U.S., this means that one of the parties is genuinely interested in increasing the number of voters and making voting easier, while the other is doing exactly the opposite. As socialists in the U.S., we need to appreciate uh, that distinction while understanding, uh, as uh, Professor Ahmed says, that neither party is actually interested in mass political involvement uh, beyond elections. My own impression is that we socialists uh, in the U.S. have significantly underestimated the right-wing threat to the electoral process over the last few years, up to and including the aftermath of the 2020 election. Specifically, we have underestimated the degree to which the far right has become institutionalized in the Republican Party, just as the U.S. is finally, perhaps, uh, you know, actually shedding its uh, Jim Crow baggage. It is surely a sign of our analytical and organizational weakness that we were conspicuously absent in the defense of the 2020 election results, Uh, from the far right. This absence makes the current U.S. socialist left stand out, and not in a good way, in the history of socialists all over the world uh, defending democracy. Coming next on this podcast, Thea Riofrancos on potential strategies for eco-socialist organizing during the Biden presidency. Join us in thinking aloud about how our day-to-day work during Corona can cohere into a battle plan for democratic socialism after it. <laughs>